shall be love. The beginning, the middle, and the end. The middle by Carl Marking. I received the call that Shelby was cleared of heartworms the day before my 43rd birthday. Once the vets began going after her adult heartworms, I was told she could suffer a stroke or heart attack as they were killed off and absorbed by her body. I worried about that all the time, but neither happened. I moved from foster to adopter and became what is known in the dog world as a foster failure. I'd never been happier to have failed so completely at something. A month after Shelby got her clean bill of health, I was back to my old self, and the pack was once again on the move. We took daily walks around the neighborhood and special trips to hike the county's many nature preserves. I gave the dogs as much off-leash time in open fields as I could manage. They would run as far and as fast as they were able. When off-leash, Willow responded better to verbal commands than Shelby. When they traveled too far for my comfort, or if I'd see someone else's dog off-leash, I'd call Willow back to me. Shelby would follow along behind her, not wanting to miss out on something, until she realized I was the destination, at which point she'd race past Willow to get to me first. They'd arrive at my side, their tongues happily dangling from their mouths, panting heavily from their exertion. My joy at watching Shelby run never faded. She had such a passion for the world around her and explored every scent and movement on our hikes. She also loved to roll in the scat of any wild animal she could find to mask her scent. She was no stranger to the tub that first year of her good health and freedom. That year was also one of the busiest of my life. I was working 60 hours a week at my full-time job and investing up to 20 hours a week on city council matters. Any remaining time I had in my schedule was dedicated to renovating my 1970s kitchen. Just after I gutted the room to the bare minimum, the sink, and a small section of countertop, my workload, both at my job and city council, picked up and I no longer had time to work on the kitchen. City council became a dark influence in my life that year. I was the first openly gay elected official in my county, an accomplishment I took very seriously. Being the first at something comes with great responsibility. I lived in a city that wasn't very forward-thinking, so my accomplishment also came with open hostility. The night I was sworn in, I was in front of a local reporter who said, Great, three idiots and a faggot. I turned around, looked him in the eye, and asked, Are you suggesting I'm an idiot? He looked away, and I never saw him in council chambers again. I was referred to as the faggot, or the queer, on council so many times I had become numb to it. But when my porch window was shot out one night, I realized I no longer had the luxury of taking my safety for granted. As the next slate of candidates were campaigning that summer for the fall election, political tensions escalated. The candidates running for open council seats on a platform of change and accountability received regular threats. One candidate had her front porch set on fire. Another had his dog bludgeoned to death, its bloody corpse abandoned behind his home. The city had a history of dogfighting, and dogs were being found dead in trash bins, some having first been mutilated or dismembered. These incidents were impossible for me to ignore. I lived alone, and the thought of someone harming Willow or Shelby was a valid concern. I was traveling more regularly for work and began having migraines. One day, half my face went numb, then my arm. I went to the ER, and they couldn't find anything through tests or imaging and dismissed it as a new aspect of my migraines. I was working too many hours. I was stressed. I wasn't sleeping well. Something had to change. During this time, Shelby began to display startled aggression. A friend of mine let himself into the house one afternoon and called out my name. Shelby leapt at him, ripped his shirt open, and grazed his skin in the process. Given everything going on in the city, part of me was relieved to see that she could handle an intruder. I dismissed it as a glitch. I told myself she was simply being overprotective of me and her home. Then she leapt at another visitor and ripped the back pocket off his slacks, grazing his butt cheek and drawing blood. Her aggression was always toward men and was always when she'd been surprised. It seemed to happen at thresholds with extreme differences between light and dark, like the exterior doorways of the house. Her aggression was a flash, there and gone, and she was back to her docile, loving self as if it never happened. The only other time she showed any clear aggression was toward the mail carrier, also a man, 
She hated all delivery trucks and drivers equally. She also hated school buses. One would park outside my dining room window, idling the engine for hours. It drove us both nuts. She stopped biting visitors and turned her attention to the mail for a time. If I happened to leave the front door to the enclosed front porch open, she would snatch the mail as it came through the slot of the front porch door and shred it. She seemed to be protecting the house from intrusions, but the behavior was problematic. When she went after a third visitor, also a man, also at the threshold between bright yard and darkened house, I called Brenda. I don't know what to tell you. Shelby has never shown the slightest aggression to me or anyone here. Your options are to handle Shelby or handle your guests. So I changed how people interacted with her as they came into the house. I would put her in another room and ask my guests to sit down when they first arrived. Once seated, I'd let her out to meet them, and she was fine. Her loving, curious self. Maybe she was sensing my stress and reacting to it. I didn't know. My headaches were becoming more frequent and worse. I needed to make some lifestyle changes to take better care of myself. I realized I had only one outstanding campaign promise. I pushed myself to finish it and then resigned from city council that August. As my stress level decreased and I had more time to spend with the dogs, Shelby's aggression faded. I assume it was most likely something about my behavior she was reacting to. Dogs are furry mirrors that reflect back to us the energy we put out to them. Even though I'd stepped away from the stress and extra hours of my work on city council, my health continued to decline. I got home from a work trip mid-October with a cough that would not quit. It fueled the worst headache of my life. My head felt as if someone was drilling from the back of the right side of my skull through to my right eye. Every time I coughed, it was as if someone hit the back of the right side of my skull with a small hammer. My doctor put me on steroids, which seemed to solve both issues. The afternoon of Halloween, as I sat at my computer in my home office, my right eye started to dart around of its own free will. When it stopped, I had double vision and couldn't make my eyes focus together. It never occurred to me to call 911. My cognition was so impaired. I believed the logical thing to do was walk out the back door of my house and up the hill, knocking on neighbors' doors until someone answered. Hello, can I help you? The woman asked at the fifth house I tried. She and her husband looked to be having a carpet picnic in their living room while watching TV. Something's wrong with my right eye. I can't control it, I said. Can you take me to the hospital? Certainly, Mary Ellen said and drove me to the hospital. That's how I came to know Mary Ellen and her husband, Bill. I'd seen them around the neighborhood and had said hello casually in passing, but that was the extent of our relationship. When I had to be admitted, she agreed that she and her husband would feed and care for Willow and Shelby until I could make other arrangements. I had no choice but to put my trust and faith in these relative strangers. Do you have your house keys? She asked as she stood to leave. No, I, I didn't think to grab them, but I think the back door is wide open. I had an evening of tests. When the doctor came into the room, he began speaking as if I had some idea as to what had happened. I didn't. Well, your strokes, he began. Strokes? Plural? I interrupted. Yes, three so far as I can tell. I didn't expect to have the strokes Shelby was able to dodge. I spent several days in the hospital and was then transferred to a rehab facility. I was gone, unexpectedly, for ten days. I was an independent person, suddenly reliant on friends and neighbors to take care of my home and look after Willow and Shelby. I was lucky. The strokes could have been so much worse. I was also grateful for the way so many people were willing to adjust their lives to coordinate care for the dogs and for me. One of my friends brought the girls to see me at rehab one day. We were so happy to see each other. But they left confused and distressed. Shelby kept looking at me over her shoulder as she was led away, perhaps wondering, why aren't you coming home? The day I was discharged from rehab and driven home by a friend, I entered my backyard. The girls came bounding out of the kitchen doorway. Shelby ran up, put her right paw gently on my left knee, and lifted herself up trying to reach my face, licking her own nose as a placeholder for the kisses she clearly wanted to deliver. I knelt on the ground so she could reach me, and she covered my face, neck, and ears with her kisses as Willow circled us, barking her enthusiasm. I wept openly at my relief of being back home, and from the excitement, joy, and love shall be lavished on me. I was out of work for six months and devoted my time to my stroke rehab and recovery, but I was barely able to care for myself during the first few months. 
My eyes didn't work together. The sound and visual centers of my brain were processing at different rates, and the entire world seemed out of sync with its own soundtrack. I had profound emotional lability and cried at the drop of a hat. I wept through an entire season of Little House on the Prairie and couldn't understand why. I was eating moldy food without realizing it. I would forget to take my medications. I would occasionally leave the burner of my gas stove on all day or all night. I couldn't hold anything in my mind for long and would wander around my home, not knowing why or if I'd been looking for something. It was a frightening and lonely time. The kitchen was still gutted, not that it mattered as I couldn't even follow a recipe. Instead, I relied heavily on takeout and delivery. I put on a lot of weight. I also learned of Shelby's deep and passionate love of pizza crust. She loved a bit of crust more than anything else I had ever given her. Needing to get out of myself, I packed up the SUV and the dogs, and we made the trip to spend Thanksgiving with my ex in upstate New York. He lived with Acadia, Olive, his sister, and her dog Finnegan. Christmas was his family's big holiday, and we'd spent most of the last 18 Thanksgivings together. He worked retail and couldn't get time off for both, so his sister would travel to Florida to spend Thanksgiving with her parents. Thanksgiving became our tradition, first as partners and now as friends. Acadia was now 14. Although she was slowing down, she was still getting around. She was still wagging her tail, still happy to see me, and still very much the sweet, beautiful soul I had loved since that evening we rescued her a lifetime ago. Olive was just as happy as ever, but had mellowed with age, and now enjoyed naps as much as a good walk. Acadia took a turn for the worse that Christmas, and was diagnosed with cancer. I'd call my ex and ask how she was doing. He'd often remark she was doing her laps. It's her thing, doing her laps. She does them every day from the living room through the kitchen and back again, he told me. I immediately thought it was pain. When a dog is in a great deal of pain, it will sometimes walk in loops to distract itself. He was saying this more frequently as time went on. I knew the end was near. As I recovered, I started working on the house again, as much for therapy as practicality. I went to use my cordless drill, and as I held it out in front of me, my right arm slowly collapsed, and I couldn't raise my arm back up until I set the drill down. My neurologist suggested it was most likely an orthopedic issue, and that I should see a surgeon. I'll need to fuse your neck at levels 3, 4, 5, 6, and possibly 7. I won't know until I'm in there, the surgeon said, looking at the results of the MRI he'd ordered. Is it that bad? I asked. Let me put it to you this way. You're a slip and fall away from being a quadriplegic. He wouldn't perform the surgery until I was a year out from my strokes and cleared by every medical specialist I'd seen during my recovery. I'd been forbidden to do anything more on the house but my entire healthcare team, due both to my strokes and the neck issue. So I packed up the girls and we headed to my ex's for the 4th of July. When we arrived, I took one look at Acadia and knew it was time. It was beyond time. Why don't you take the dogs for a walk and I'll hang out with Acadia, I suggested. She looked awful. Her fur was uneven. She was panting. Her eyes, clouded from cataracts, seemed unable to focus on me. She was skin and bones and doing the laps he'd told me about. Acadia, I said, then again more loudly. Nothing. She kept walking. I went to her and put the back of my wrist under her nose. She showed no outward sign that she recognized me at all. She eventually stopped walking and settled down on the living room floor, opposite the front door. I sat down beside her. Honey, it's me. She didn't react in any way. She panted and remained still as if she were alone. I put my hand gently on her back, and she jumped. I slowly petted her. I could feel every bone, every rib, every vertebra through her too thin coat and too tight skin. She had always had a glorious double coat of fur. I started crying in her condition, just as my ex came back inside with the dogs. What's wrong? He asked, afraid her well-being had suddenly changed while he was out. She doesn't even know who I am, I said. It's time. It's beyond time. Look at her. You have to end this. You don't know what you're talking about, he said defensively. I do. I have the perspective you don't. I haven't seen her in six months, and the change is disturbing. It's time. You have to end this. She's suffering. I was deeply angry at his inability to see what I saw. It was an awkward visit after that. 
We were standing in the driveway as I was getting ready to leave. The cancer is eating her from the inside, I said. Just weigh her, please. She used to weigh 30 to 35 pounds, and I knew the scale would pierce his denial. This was not who he was. He was a dedicated and loving pet owner. But having lived with the changes to her body as they happened gradually over the last six months, he couldn't see what I saw. I believe he was stuck in his denial and heartbreak at the idea of losing her. I gave him a fierce hug and left for home. A couple of days later, he sent an email to me and a mutual friend of ours. I weighed Acadia this morning, and she is only 15 pounds. I think Carl is right. The cancer is starving her to death. I can't and I don't want to let her suffer, so I called the vet and made an appointment for next Thursday. She said she would come out to the house. Acadia was released from her painful burden on July 12th. The following month, Shelby suddenly refused to go outside for last time out. No matter what I did, she wouldn't go into the backyard. As she and I engaged in our battle of wills in the doorway, Willow ducked by us. As soon as she made it to the grass, she peed, then quickly ran back inside the house. Shelby wouldn't budge. She held her bladder all night, and I found her the next morning waiting by the kitchen door, dancing from foot to foot in her need to get outside and relieve herself. On the third night of this behavior, I cheated. I turned on the floodlights to the yard, opened the back door, and called, Squirrel! She and Willow ran into the backyard. I quickly closed the porch and kitchen doors and waited ten minutes out of sight. When I opened the back door, my nose was flooded with the smell of something hot, like burning plastic or electrical wiring. My first thought was it was a fire or a chemical spill at the steel mill. I phoned Mary Ellen. All we smell is the usual sewer smell wafting on the breeze. The dogs came running in from the yard, shaking their heads violently. Shelby was drooling. It's not that. It smells like a fire, or as if maybe there was a chemical accident at the mill. Let me smell, she said, and took the phone onto her deck. Skunk. As she said the word, I turned to Willow and Shelby, who were running around the house sneezing and rubbing their faces on anything they could find. The sofa, the rugs, the walls. And it sunk in. Oh no, I said. The girls have been sprayed by a skunk. Oh no, she said. Do you need help? Yes, please. Mary Ellen came down and helped me sort things out. As I bathed Shelby that night, I noticed that she had puncture wounds on her body, and I took her to Brenda the next day. Some of these are fresh. Some are a few days old, she said. She's been bitten on her legs and chin. Looks like she and the skunk must have been going at it. So that's why she wouldn't go out at night, I thought. After that night, the skunk moved on. Once the girls had marked everything in the yard with their urine, they got back to their routines. It took months for me to get the smell out of the dogs and out of the house. A few weeks later, and Shelby came in with a nickel-sized hole in her side. Well, Brenda said, it's not a bite this time. It looks like maybe she tore it on something. A branch or the fence, perhaps. They dressed her wound and she went back into her cone. I had my wood-burning fireplace restored over the summer, and that winter Shelby revealed how much she loved the snow. Her coat was thick enough that the snow would immediately build up on her back and her head. She'd lick it off her coat, stick her nose in it, stick her head in it, move it around with her snout, tag piles of it with her front paws and run away, come back and do it again. She couldn't get enough of it. If she could have made snow angels, she would have done them all over the yard. She also discovered the joy of lying in front of a raging fire. I would make one most evenings, listen to old jazz standards, and have a cocktail. She and Willow would soak up the heat from the fire. Shelby would sometimes gently bark in her sleep as she did so. It was a muffled sound, a bit like somebody with big thighs wearing wide rail corduroy pants walking away quickly, a kind of zip whistle noise with a grunt at the end. When she'd become overheated, she'd move away from the fire and lie on her back at my feet to do her floor show. One night, having finished, she looked at me expectantly, on her back, her tongue hanging out of the side of her muzzle. What do you want? She sneezed and kept looking at me. I slipped off my shoes, and with both my socked feet, I cradled her torso and rubbed her abdomen, ribs, and muzzle. Her tail wagged in delight. Sock rub then became a regular part of her floor show after that. As January approached, I prepared for my cervical fuse. With the exception of my sister, all the members of my family of origin lived within an hour of me. However, my father disowned me at 16 when he left my mother. 
My mother threw me out and wished me dead of AIDS when I told her I was gay at 21. I tried for decades to find common ground with her, but rarely spoke to her after my initial strokes and her response to them. My brother had abused me from elementary school until he moved out on his own when I was in eighth grade. I'd barely spoken to him since. My sister drifted in and out of my life as it suited her. This left me a fiercely independent person who didn't do superficial friendships. Six months after I returned to work from my strokes, I had to go out again for another medical leave. I made arrangements with my family of choice, my friends, for care of Shelby, Willow, and me during my surgery and recovery. In the end, I was fused from C3 to C7. A fuse of that length often comes with complications, and I was in a fragile state for months. I would forever be unable to lie in any position other than flat on my back and without a pillow. Like Shelby, I had always slept on my left side, and now I couldn't. It was a small price to pay for not being a quadriplegic, but a difficult change to accommodate after a lifetime of side-sleeping. I worked with my network of friends to find dog walkers for Willow and Shelby to keep them happy and healthy. I was eventually cleared by the surgeon to walk Shelby because she didn't pull. Willow, regardless of the collar or leash, pulled as if she were a sled dog, and her walker, the sled. Mary Ellen rose to the occasion. I would take Shelby, who liked to take her time, sniffing everything, doling out her urine in small squirts every 20 steps or so as if it were the world's most precious commodity. Mary Ellen, who was not a dog person, but a great friend, did her best to keep Willow in check as we walked our neighborhood. It was a long recovery, and I was grateful to my friends for being such a wonderful support network. It was humbling. That summer, Shelby's fourth with me, I met Jim. Jim appeared one day as a possible match in my feed on the dating site Plenty of Fish. I was up front that I was a hardcore, must-love-dogs kind of guy. Dogs are loving tethers in one's life, and as pack animals require regular company and engagement. If someone didn't want to accommodate the responsibilities that came with the fact that I owned two dogs, who needed my care and attention, I simply moved on. Jim was all in from the start. We met for coffee, and then started dating. He lived 30 minutes from me in an 18th century home with a 20th century renovation. All the hardwood floors had been refinished and were free from scratches. When he invited me over one day and encouraged me to bring the dogs for the first time, I knew his floors would be marred by their nails, which they were, but he welcomed them into his home again and again, regardless of the light damage their nails were doing. Around the one-month mark of our dating, Jim made reservations for a special dinner on the tall ship Mushulu, which had been converted to a restaurant and was moored at Penn's Landing in Philadelphia. I'd not been feeling well leading up to our date, but he was so excited to share the experience with me, I didn't have the heart to cancel. As we sat down to dinner, something was horribly wrong in my abdomen. Jim, fully immersed in the moment, was happily eating his dinner and enjoying the view. He was oblivious to my distress and the fact I wasn't eating. The pain was such that I knew I was going to need to go to the hospital, but I didn't have the heart to interrupt what was clearly a great experience for him. I already felt badly for what I knew was about to unfold and took regular, shallow breaths to manage my discomfort. He finished his last bite and put his fork on his plate. I need to go to the ER. What? What's wrong? I don't know, but I have terrible pain in my abdomen. I need to get to the hospital. Do you want me to call an ambulance? He asked. I would have been mortified to make such a scene at a restaurant. If it's okay with you, I'd rather you take me. Of course, he said. Can you take care of the check while I start getting outside? He nodded his agreement. As I stood up, it felt how I imagined it would feel to be shot in the abdomen at point-blank range. I thought I screamed out in pain, but Jim told me later I hadn't. I grabbed the column closest to me for support and closed my eyes, trying to get through the pain and not collapse on the floor. There was no other side to the pain. We have to go, now, I said. The ER triage nurse dismissed my symptoms as a gallbladder attack, but given my history of stroke and no prior history of gallbladder issues, I was unconvinced. Jim stayed with me in the ER lobby for several hours as they treated patients they'd assigned a higher priority. I couldn't even sit down, the pain was so bad. When I was taken into an exam room, they had trouble starting my IV, and my blood squirted on Jim's dress shoes. He was unfazed. I thought in that moment, this one may be a keeper. They took me for a CT scan and an MRI, and when the radiology reports came back, a doctor came into the room. Can I speak in front of your friend? Yes, I said. He has my blood on his shoes. The mystery is over. 
We don't know much, but we know one thing. You're full of shit. Gallows humor never bothered me, and given I'd already been through the medical mill, it was funny. Jim had the oddest look on his face. What's wrong, I asked. Is it okay if I laugh? Go ahead, I said. And he released the last several hours of tension in a hearty laugh. It turned out the reason I hadn't been feeling well the past week or so was because my bowels had shut down in response to the stroke I'd apparently had in my abdomen. I was admitted to the hospital around midnight. What had happened was so rare, it took them 12 hours to diagnose. My care team was very grave and tight-lipped as I lay there on mandatory bed rest. I'd never experienced such pain. The organ damaged by the stroke had become necrotic and was slowly peeling away from my abdominal wall, which I learned is lined with pain receptors. I honestly didn't know if I was going to live or die, and there was talk of potentially having to have a colostomy bag as they were waiting to see the full impact from the event. I had many sleepless hours to contemplate my life, which one does in such situations. Cutting ties with family is never done lightly. As painful and caustic as my relationships with my family were, I held out hope in my heart that one day my mother and I would be able to repair or salvage our relationship. Fueled either by drug-induced optimism or perhaps bad judgment and a lack of certainty regarding my outcome of this most recent event, I called my mother, a retired hospital nurse, to let her know what had happened. I believed I needed to at least give her the chance to change, even if I no longer believed she was capable of doing so. Maybe I'll come see you. I'll see, was her answer. Even though I knew intellectually she would most likely let me down, it was still painful. You know what, Mom? Don't bother. I hung up the phone. She didn't bother. The emotional pull of family is strong, even in the dysfunctional ones. I coordinated coverage for the dogs from the hospital bed. Then Jim took over as I was in no shape to do anything. He was either by my side at the hospital, with the dogs, or at work. When he wasn't able to care for them, Mary Ellen, Bill, and a few of my friends took over. When I got home, Willow came out and met me in the backyard. Her tail was wagging. She peed, sniffed me, wrinkled her nose, and went back inside. Shelby was so glad to see me she couldn't contain herself. She'd run a few feet away, turn around, look at me, run back, stand up on her hind legs, gently tag me on the thighs with her front paws, run away again, and repeat the whole process. She did this until I got settled on the sofa. She jumped up next to me and wriggled her way as close to me as possible, licking my neck and the insides of my ear with her aardvark-like tongue. Tears flowed from my eyes, which she happily licked off my cheeks. I was so grateful to have survived another stroke and be back home with my girls. As Christmas approached, I brought the dogs to Jim's house as we were going to decorate for our first Christmas together. By the time we finished getting the tree, putting it up, and pulling out all the boxes of decorations, it was time for dinner. We used child gates to pen the dogs in his kitchen. When we got back, they had broken through one of the gates. The first thing I noticed was a mouse bait trap on the floor just outside his kitchen. It had been chewed open, and the bait was lying on the rug. Jim, where did this come from? I don't know. His exterminator used mouse traps baited with poison that smelled of peanut butter. They were placed in strategic locations in his attached garage and basement, both of which had doors he kept closed. I picked up the bait, and it had small chew marks on it, but I couldn't tell if it was from the dogs or mice. As I was examining the bait, he did a sweep of the house. I left the door to the garage unlatched, he said. It must be from in there. What do we do? He was deeply upset. I don't think enough poison is missing to warrant taking them to an ER, but we should induce vomiting just to be sure. I need salt. He got salt, and I threw some into the back of Shelby's throat. Waited ten minutes, but nothing. I grabbed my smartphone and looked up how to induce vomiting in dogs. Salt had been deemed risky since the last time I had tried to make a dog vomit. The recommendation now was a mixture of hydrogen peroxide and vanilla ice cream. Do you have any hydrogen peroxide? I think so. He ran upstairs and came back carrying a bottle of peroxide. I mixed some salt and peroxide together in a glass at the kitchen sink to make sure the two agents wouldn't react. The last thing I wanted was some unexpected reaction in Shelby's belly. Do you have any vanilla ice cream? It was his favorite, and luckily he did. I followed the recipe for mixing the two together based on their body weight and offered it to them. They ate it up like a special treat. We waited ten minutes. Nothing. Let's let them run around outside, I said thinking the agitation would move the process along. 
Shelby was the first to vomit, and again, and again. She vomited at least a dozen times all over Jim's yard. But Willow, stubborn thing that she was, didn't do a thing. We waited twenty minutes, and I figured, given her weight and the amount of poison that had been scratched off, she'd be fine. We went back inside. Jim and I were in his kitchen, coming down from the adrenaline of it all. Unbeknownst to us, Willow was vomiting all over Jim's first floor. She did it out of sight and in complete silence, so it took us a while to catch on. Jim, looking horrified, got towels, and I began to clean up the mess while examining it for signs of the blue wax-like poison. I had never seen so much vomit. I was on my hands and knees, just outside the kitchen, covered in vomit. He came to check on me, got one whiff of the mess, and his gag reflex triggered. He ran back into the kitchen and began throwing up in the sink. Jim and Willow were now vomiting in unison. Jim at the sink, and Willow all over a box of Jim's Christmas tree ornaments. Shelby was loudly slurping water from the bowl on the kitchen floor. The combination of Shelby reloading with water while Jim and Willow were actively vomiting as I was cleaning up piles of vomit as quickly as they were being made got me laughing at the absurdity of it all. I couldn't stop. I was on my knees, my hands full of gunk, belly laughing. It's not that funny, Jim said, crushed that I would laugh at his misery. I need something to drink to wash this out of my mouth, he said as he walked back into the kitchen. Wait, I called out and ran into the room behind him, just as he finished the glass of salt and peroxide I'd left by the sink. He held up the glass, looked at it, and said, What? As if to ask, What is in this? I looked from him to the glass. He looked back at me. His eyes widened, and he began throwing up in the sink all over again. I began laughing so hard I was crying, holding my vomit-covered hands up, trying to keep them from dripping on the kitchen floor. And that was how we started our first Christmas together as a pack. Everyone was fine, just a bit dehydrated. Our third year together, as I approached Jim's front door, I bent over to pick up a small branch on the brick path. As I stood up, I was struck by a blinding flash of light in my right eye. It was as if a lightning strike was running horizontally across my field of vision on a loop, crackling with blue, black, and white energy. I could barely see out of my right eye, and when I closed it, The light burned on my retina, like the afterimage of a camera flash. We decided to go to Will's Eye Institute's emergency room in Philly, where it seemed as if every clinician, resident, and fellow in the building tested, poked, and prodded my eye. I was admitted to the hospital. I was told I'd had another stroke-like event, my fifth, this time in my retina. Part of my retina was dying from an interruption of blood flow. I felt as if my sense of self was being taken away from me. I was being eroded bit by bit, and no one could give me an answer as to why. I lived under a cloud of constant fear. I waited endlessly for the stroke that would finally claim either my life or my brain, taking from me the essence of who I was as a person. I was done being chipped away by whatever was happening to me, but medical science seemingly had no answers. In the end, I figured it out. I'd seen neurologist after neurologist, cardiologist after cardiologist, and I realized they were basing all of my treatment on the radiology report from one study I had done after my original strokes five years earlier. Something had to be wrong with that study. A Penn Medicine cardiologist finally listened to my story. I'm inclined to agree, she said. If all your care and treatment plans have been based primarily on this one study, and you're continuing to have events, then it's worth looking at the study. Do you have the radiology report? Yes, I said and handed her the report. All anyone ever wanted to do was look at the report. But what I need you to do is to put this in your computer and look at the actual study yourself. I handed the DVD of the study to her. Please. Okay, she said. I'll be back. Twenty minutes later, she returned. I agree. The study is flawed. She ordered a new one, and it turned out I needed to have open-heart surgery to repair a defect in my heart. It was scheduled for just before my 49th birthday. But that's a story for another time. There's a kitten coming our way, I said out of nowhere that autumn. What do you mean, coming our way? I'm not a cat person, he said worriedly. I don't know, Jim. It's out there. It's on the way. I've been having that feeling for some time. Four days before Christmas, I arrived at Jim's house, let myself in, and waited for him to get home from work. I was sitting in his living room, listening to music, and hanging out with Willow and Shelby, who were enjoying rawhide treats in front of the fire. He came through the front door and called out, Carl, you are unbelievable. I froze in place. My first thought, what did I do now? 
There is a kitten sitting under your car in the driveway. It's here, I shouted, grabbed the flashlight from the kitchen pantry, and ran out the front door. Jim followed behind me. There was nothing there. It's here. That's our kitten. What does it look like? It's black and white, he said, unsure of what was happening. The next day I arrived around the same time, hoping my warm car would attract the stray again. I put a saucer of milk under the car and waited patiently in the cold, not moving, and out of sight for 45 minutes. It waited just as patiently for me to go away. I gave up and went inside. Before bed, I went outside to check the milk. It was all gone. Jim had the garage that was attached to his house converted into a TV room. There was a carport attached to it. The door from his new TV room to the carport was a full-length glass door with a full-length glass storm door. We routinely left the interior door open as the dogs enjoyed looking out every so often. We began leaving the exterior light on and would put a saucer of milk, a saucer of dry food, and a saucer of canned tuna or salmon just outside the storm door each evening. Although we didn't always see the kitten, it was clearly eating the food each day. The forecast was predicting nighttime temperatures in the single and possibly negative digits. We checked the last saucer of milk we'd put out earlier that evening, just before we went to bed. In under four hours, it had frozen. Jim, if Bob is feral, he won't survive these temps. We need to catch him whether we keep him or not. Bob? Short for Bobcat. The morning of Christmas Eve day, we checked the food dishes. Bob had chewed his way through the slushy frozen milk. I'm getting a trap, I said, and went to the local SPCA to pick one up. I set the trap just after dark, baited it with fresh tuna, and covered it with a larger cardboard box that I had cut a cartoon-style mouse hole into. I cut the hole smaller than the trap door in order to hide it. I wrote, Welcome Bob, above the hole, with a big black Sharpie marker. Within minutes, Bob was caught. Unfortunately, I misjudged Bob's size, and the trap, which only had a door at one end, was so small he couldn't turn around. We couldn't safely get him out, so we took him to the animal ER around the corner from Jim. This was not a high-priority case, so we waited patiently several hours before they took him back. We can't get it out either, the vet said to us in the waiting area. Would it be okay if we knocked it out with an injection of reversible anesthesia, she asked. We consented. Forty-five minutes later, the vet came into the waiting area and announced, It's a girl! I turned to Jim. So then, Bobby? She's a bit groggy from the anesthesia, the vet continued. She's not chipped, so what would you like to do with her? It was clear the staff was delighted to have something to focus on that wasn't an animal in serious crisis on Christmas Eve. We asked them to run a basic blood panel and include feline AIDS and leukemia. All the tests came back clear. She's intact and seems to be about a year old based on the pristine nature of her adult teeth, the vet concluded. You'll need to quarantine her for 30 days before allowing her around the dogs, as she could be carrying anything from microbes that could impact their GI system to rabies. Give her time to adjust being inside your home, the vet concluded. Merry Christmas, everyone called out as we left. We set the kitten up in a large bathroom Jim didn't use. The room had a tiled floor for easy cleanup was always warm, and had a window for lots of light and something to look at. It was big enough and quiet enough for her to feel safe and become acclimated to being inside. Do we keep her? I asked. She came to us. We rescued her. I feel like she's our responsibility now. But you don't like cats, I said. Well, I've never had one. We'll see how it goes. What do we call her? he asked. I don't know. Either she'll tell us or it will come to us, I said. Given we were leaning toward keeping her, we made an appointment to see Brenda at 5.45 the next day. We started the process of getting her in her carrier just before 5, and finished half past 6. It seemed simple enough. Reach over the top of the clawfoot tub behind which she'd been sitting all day, doe-eyed, and pop her into the carrier. We had changed our clothes in preparation of how this could unfold. We both had long-sleeved shirts on, and Jim put on the leather gloves I had suggested. Then we went into the room. He managed to get her by the scruff of her neck on the first try. As he lifted her above the rim of the tub, it was as if her entire body turned into a physics-defying act of acrobatics. Her face transmogrified into something worthy of Gollum in The Lord of the Rings. She leapt from Jim's grasp, using the carrier as a launching pad, hurling herself across the room, easily five and a half feet off the floor. I swear I heard her call out, My precious! She landed on the floor and quickly launched herself back into the air, hitting the wall six feet high to my left. With my own cat-like reflexes, I grabbed her and held her in my arms. 
Acting as a feline atomizer, she released easily a full day's worth of urine onto my torso and into my mouth, nose, and eyes. Man down! I released her. She landed on the floor and leapt onto the rough-hewn colonial-style wood door frame, her claws finding purchase in the unfinished wood. She climbed to the top of the frame, releasing more urine onto my unsuspecting iPad and reading glasses on the floor beneath her. She leapt again, back across the room, over Jim's head. She landed on a rough-hewn wood-framed windowsill beside a bronze statue of a bull moose. Cat and moose, equivalent in size, were standing butt to shoulder looking into the room, antlers and ears raised and ready for battle. If only we had a camera, I cried out. She, cornered, looked at me as if to say, I don't want to hurt you. I looked back as if to say, I don't want to hurt you either. Determined, I moved in, covered her with a towel, swung quickly around and called out to my faithful companion, Jim, the carrier, now! He opened the top lid and held it beneath her. I released my grip. She landed on her back on the towel we'd already put inside. Her pink feet and soft belly exposed into feet looking like a sad, furry turtle. We were victorious! She finished emptying her bladder. Jim sealed the top of her carrier and said, I'll meet you in the car. Oh no, I'm not going anywhere until I've showered, I said, as I stripped my urine-laden clothing from my body and dropped it in the tub. When we arrived, we told Brenda what had happened. I'm not taking her out of her carrier after that story. She's fine right where she is for now. Bring her back in two weeks. Having gone through quite a lot of effort to bring her here, Jim and I exchanged frustrated glances. Brenda explained everything we needed to do for the next two weeks, and we drove back to Jim's house, where we were greeted by the stench of cat urine and accusatory glares from the dogs. We know what you've been hiding in the upstairs bathroom, their eyes said. We cleaned up the bathroom, set the carrier on the floor, opened the door, and left the room. We then got ourselves cleaned up, went downstairs, and poured ourselves a drink. We sat in silence, wondering, what the hell was that? I've been thinking of a name, I said the next morning over coffee. What is it? Well, I patiently waited for a month for her to arrive. I patiently waited next to my car Sunday night to catch her as she came in for a snack. She patiently waited for me to go away. We patiently waited hours at the ER the night we caught her. Now we're patiently waiting for her to come out of her shell. I'm thinking patience would be a good idea. I like it, he said. Patience it is. We decided to keep patience, and she lived solely at Jim's house. We spent the next year slowly introducing her into Jim's home and into the pack. The dogs gave Jim's house the once-over from top to bottom every time I'd bring them over. They demanded an introduction to patience, but we wanted it to happen organically. It took months for patience to venture out of the bathroom, and more months for her to begin observing the dogs from plain sight. She would do so from an open landing on the second floor that offered a review of most of the first floor where the dogs were, while also providing her an easy escape back into the bathroom if she felt she needed one. Eight months in, and she finally began exploring physical proximity with the dogs. On the one-year anniversary of her foundling day, as Jim called it, they'd mostly worked everything out. Patience ruled Willow with a swift paw and unrivaled agility, while Patience and Shelby had a more tenuous piece of cord. Shelby was now old enough that she wasn't hyper-focused on patience, but they never let their guard down around one another. Every so often, Shelby would half-heartedly lunge at her and give a short bark in her direction, just to be sure patience knew who was in whose home. Patience would quickly run away, and just as quickly return for more. Meanwhile, I had a mystery that needed solving at my house. One of the dogs kept tossing all of the pillows of my living room sofa onto the floor, I didn't let either of them on this sofa, and using the pillows, I created a barrier from side to side so they couldn't jump up. I decided to install a nanny cam to see what was happening and set it on the mantel opposite the sofa. Although it was supposed to be motion activated, it wasn't recording anything. I thought maybe there wasn't enough light, so I turned all the lights on one evening, left the dogs alone while I spent the evening at Jim's, and when I came home, the pillows were once again on the floor, and the camera had recorded the whole thing. What I saw was Willow, carefully pulling each pillow onto the floor. Each time a pillow would hit the floor, she'd look toward the kitchen as if to see if I were home yet. Then she'd do the next, look into the kitchen, and so on. When she was finished, she climbed up onto the sofa and curled into a ball. A minute or two later, Shelby entered the frame. She stood in front of the sofa, and rather than join Willow, she started barking at her. She barked and barked until Willow finally got down. Satisfied, Shelby then turned around, walked across the room, and jumped up onto the upholstered chair she was allowed to sleep on, curled up, and fell asleep. Willow did not go back to the sofa. She's a little cop, I said to Jim. 
I think something's wrong with Willow, Jim said. Willow, come here, Jim said and snapped his fingers. She didn't move and looked at us anxiously. Willow, come, I said, using my this-is-not-a-request voice. Nothing. I crossed the room and knelt beside her. She turned her head toward me but still wouldn't move. I gently took her by the collar and tried to get her to stand. As she stood, she yelped in surprised pain and sat back down. Her reaction reminded me of being on my date with Jim when I stood up from the table right before he took me to the hospital. We need to take her to the emergency room, I said. I went to load her into Jim's SUV. She yelped again, much louder, and her body spasmed. In my surprise, I lost my hold on her and dropped her hard, feet first, onto the driveway. Her legs splayed out and she collapsed. If she felt like I had when I had my abdominal stroke, I knew I just caused her a tremendous amount of pain. I felt as if I betrayed all her trust and faith in me. What do we do? Jim asked. Well, we could lift her using a towel under her body like a sling, but I'm afraid that could make whatever is happening worse from so much pressure in a concentrated spot. In the end, Jim lifted her under her front arms, bracing his forearms against her ribs, while I put my forearm under her hips. We lifted her as gently as we could and put her in the car. She began panting rapidly. We took her to the same ER as patients, and they took her back immediately. An hour later, a doctor came out. It's cancer. She's riddled with tumors, and they're rupturing. They kept her overnight for observation and to make her comfortable. Brenda called me the next morning after having received a copy of her notes from the ER. It's too advanced. There's nothing to be done. We could put her on pain medication, but that's it. This kind of cancer doesn't respond well to chemo, and the tumors will keep forming and rupturing, which will be very painful for Willow. I don't think you have any choice but to put her down. Perspective is a funny thing. I was oddly grateful for the stroke I'd had in my abdomen. I knew what that kind of pain was like and didn't want Willow to suffer it. My experience greatly informed the decision we suddenly had before us. In under 12 hours, we had gone from noticing something was wrong to agreeing to euthanize her. It was the humane and right thing to do. We brought Shelby to the hospital with us so she could be with Willow, her Pac-Man of eight years, as she left our lives. Jim, Shelby, and I sat together in a small room off the lobby of the ER clinic. There is one door to the lobby and another to the treatment area. Both doors had windows, and people waiting in the lobby would curiously peek through the window at us as they walked by. I'd glare at them as if to say, Do you mind? We're in the middle of ending our dog's life. Anyone who looked into my eyes quickly looked away. A vet tech brought Willow into the room. One of her hind legs had been shaved, and she'd been given something to make her comfortable. On mostly steady legs, she happily trotted over to us, hoping, I'm sure, we were there to get her the hell out of that place. She wore her biggest, sweetest smile, and her bright pink tongue with its dark chow birthmark hung happily from the side of her muzzle. That's when I saw the pick line taped to her hind leg, where they'd give her the final injection. Just knock on the door and let us know when you're ready, the tech said and left us to say our goodbyes. Willow curled up on the floor between us, and we petted her luxuriously thick reddish-gold coat and told her we loved her. Shelby looked on from a wary distance. How do I choose which moment is her last? I asked Jim through my tears. He was crying too and couldn't speak. He reached out and took my hand. The door opened and the vet tech peeked in. We're ready, I said. We were anything but. The tech returned with the vet, who was carrying the syringe that would end Willow's life. She inserted the needle into the pick line. Are you ready? She asked gently. It will happen very quickly. I don't want you to be surprised. Although I'd seen Petunia euthanized years earlier, I was certain, no matter what, it was going to surprise me. Neither Jim nor I could speak and nodded our acknowledgement that we were ready. We took turns giving Willow's head and neck long, tender strokes. Shelby was paying close attention, but maintained her distance. The vet pressed the plunger, and within seconds, Willow was gone. Her bladder released immediately onto my leg and the floor. Her coat felt different. 
Less luxurious, less soft, lifeless. She was 11. The next day, Shelby wouldn't stop shaking, and the next, and the next. They came in endless violent waves and rattled the charms on her collar. I couldn't figure it out. Was she mourning? Was she anxious? It could be either of those things, Brenda said, and prescribed Valium. It was a very low dose, but Shelby didn't tolerate it very well. It was too sedating. When she did manage to calm herself down, if I said hello to her or called her name, she'd begin shaking all over again. If she were physically active with Jim or I, she'd be okay, but as soon as she was in a room, on her own, she would shake. At the end of the fourth month of this, as my 51st birthday approached, I said to Jim, I want to get another dog to keep Shelby company. I'm not sure I'm up for that, he replied. Well, I said, preparing for a fight, we don't live together and it's kind of my call. He looked both wounded and cornered by my comment. I softened. Shelby hasn't been right since Willow's death four months ago. We've given her enough time to work through whatever this is, and clearly she can't. We have to take some kind of action. It's not healthy for her to be in such a state all the time. As I imagine we'll be living together one day, I want you to help me choose who's next to join our family. We had many discussions on the matter. He was an anti-dog. We just process at two different speeds and come at most every issue from completely different points of view. Although we normally act as a team, I was resolute on the matter, and he knew it. Okay, he said eventually. We went to the rescue where I'd found Shelby. Our friendship with Patrick had deepened over the years, and we'd become regular donors to the shelter. We brought Shelby along as I knew they'd want her to meet any potential adoptee for compatibility. When she saw where we'd taken her, she began drooling from anxiety. We selected another southern rescue, a male adolescent foxhound. He was intact, had broken teeth, and pieces of his floppy ears were missing, as if they'd been cut or ripped open in a dogfight. One look into his warm brown eyes, and he had me. The shelter had named him Forrest, and in the short time we interacted with him in the lobby, waiting to complete the adoption paperwork, multiple visitors to the shelter would say, Forrest? Run, Forrest, run! I leaned into Jim and whispered, We're changing his name immediately. You keep calling him Tucker, Jim whispered back. Do I? I hadn't noticed. I still had verbal aphasia from my strokes, especially around names. Just as we were about to finalize the adoption paperwork, a staffer came out and said, Wait! Forrest is actually a medical rescue! You have got to be kidding me, I thought. How is this only coming up now, within minutes of us walking out the door with him? I didn't intend to go through what I'd gone through with Shelby a second time. We had a devil of a time introducing patients into our pack, and it didn't seem fair to Jim to put him through all the time and effort a medical foster requires. It wasn't what we had agreed to. We lived in separate houses, we worked long days, and Jim traveled a great deal for his job. Everything needed for Forrest's care, given we lived between two houses, would have to be duplicated at both our places. I turned to Jim to say as much, but he held up his hand and preempted me in his pragmatic, inclusive, and loving way. We found him for a reason. Just like you found Shelby and we found patience. I say we do it. I turned to the staffer. Okay, what's his story? He was in much the same state Shelby had been. He had heart and intestinal worms, though not as badly as she had, though his treatment path would be similar to hers. Like her, it turned out he was also intolerant of a lot of the medications. As the intestinal worm treatment began, he peed and pooed his kennel every single night. When we hit the one-week mark, I called the shelter concerned for his welfare. I know it's challenging for you and for Forrest, the care coordinator said. The drug almost always causes diarrhea and has the unfortunate side effect of making him both thirsty and incapable of controlling his bladder. Well, that's a hell of a combo, I thought. By the end of the first week, Jim and I had a routine down. Take him outside, remove the bedding and wash it, remove the liner of the kennel and hose it off in the shower and give him a shower or a rinse-off as needed. His constant peeing was the worst for him and for us, especially if he'd lift his leg and pee through the kennel and onto the floor. It was so bad at one point we kept him in the large downstairs shower with a full-length sliding glass door. We just washed everything down the drain each morning and would give him a bath as needed. This routine lasted for 30 straight days. Once his intestinal worms were sorted and he and Shelby could share space together, she stopped shaking, immediately, as if a switch had been flipped. I guess she was lonely, I offered. 
Late that spring, we decided to combine homes and spent the early part of the summer looking at houses. Tucker, formerly Forrest, had proven to be a sweet and tender dog, but also an escape artist and a runner. He escaped any chance he could, and being a nose with four legs, instantly disappeared, following whatever scent he'd picked up. We learned to be diligent with his transfers in and out of the house and the cars. We settled on a place with 20 mostly wooded acres, a large enclosed paddock, and a good-sized section of maintained yard. Tucker could run in the paddock to his heart's content, and Shelby could explore the grounds without worry of uneven terrain or hidden wild animals. It was a perfect property for them, given their different needs and stages of life. The house had been vacant for several years and needed to be renovated. While the work began that summer, Jim put his house on the market. That autumn, he and Patience moved in with Tucker, Shelby, and me. As fall turned to winter, Shelby showed signs of neck discomfort and became less interested in exploring the backyard. I took her to see Brenda. She's also getting weird about transitions from light to dark. When she comes in from outside on a sunny day, she'll stop at the doorway before coming in, like she's letting her eyes adjust. The x-rays are clear, so I'll give you an anti-inflammatory for her neck. Regarding the doorways, you may want to take her to an ophthalmologist. I didn't know there was such a thing for a dog. Dr. Lutz had a busy practice, and we got an appointment for the coming February. Shelby's eyes had begun to cloud, and I was afraid she was coming to the end of her interest in exploring the world around her. On our first visit with Dr. Lutz, she noted Shelby's eyes were irritated and prescribed eye drops. Within five days, Shelby was back to exploring the yard and trotting through the door with confidence. We were so relieved for her. Then the COVID-19 pandemic arrived, and everyone's lives were shut down. Around my 53rd birthday, a full year into the world of COVID, Shelby began having orthopedic issues with her hind legs, specifically her hocks. They would swell and make it difficult for her to walk. The swelling would wax and wane, but she benefited from medication and regular physical therapy and quickly got back to normal. That spring, she began getting winded when exerting herself and developed a huffing sound, just shy of a cough, as if she were trying to clear her throat. I knew from past experience this could mean something related to her heart, so I took her to Brenda, who recommended we get her worked up by a cardiologist. At this point in history, all doctors in the vet world were booking months out. The first appointment we could get was early July. By June, she was getting winded more easily, but the huffing wasn't any worse. Her left atrium is enlarged, and she has a mild heart murmur, the cardiologist said. I'm going to add an ACE inhibitor to the other meds. She responded to the medication and was back to going on walks, exploring the yard, and chasing the occasional trespassing squirrel. As we approached the one-year anniversary of buying our new home, the majority of renovations had been completed, and we decided to move in mid-July. Shelby's issues were under control, the eye drops continued to help her vision, her orthopedic issues were stable, and she was able to enjoy walking the grounds with us and the occasional short run with Tucker in the paddock. We had previously scheduled Shelby's next follow-up with Dr. Lutz for the end of July. The update we provided was that she was doing well. We noted that her eyes seemed to have clouded a bit more and that she showed some hesitation around transitions from bright to dark spaces. But otherwise, she was fine. We also let her know about her recent echocardiogram. We left that visit with an additional eye drop and a recommendation for a supplement that would help her overall eye health. The tech brought Shelby out to the car as we still weren't allowed in due to COVID. She gave us her meds and handed us some information about cataract surgery that Dr. Lutz had said she'd provide. If you're interested, call the office to schedule her pre-op testing, the tech said. When we got home, Jim and I discussed it. What do you think? I asked. I think if it gives Shelby a better quality of life, we should do it, Jim said. What about her heart murmur and her age? The pre-op testing will show if she's a decent candidate. And Dr. Lutz said she'd consult with anesthesia and cardiology as needed to make sure she's safe if we do move forward. We decided to go ahead with her pre-op testing. It was scheduled for the end of August. When the day came, we dropped Shelby off for her half day of testing. Everything indicated she'd be a good candidate. Dr. Lutz emailed us that she'd gotten the cardiologist's notes and had left him a message. Now it was a matter for us to decide whether or not we wanted to do it. I wanted to give Shelby this gift, but I was concerned about her age and her heart. I kept thinking about Acadia's eyes the last time I'd seen her. 
If cardiology thinks it's safe, I think we should do it, I said. Jim agreed. The surgery was scheduled for October. Can you imagine what it's going to be like for her when she wakes up one morning and can see clearly again? I was so happy we could do this for her. She had such a rough start when she came into my life. It was deeply important to me to make the last part of her life as easy for her as I could. In mid-September, Shelby's hock flared up again, and I took her to see Brenda. Well, we'll do the usual things for her hock, but I heard a heart murmur on both sides of her heart, and I don't like it, she said. It's no surprise given her history of heartworms and her age, but it's above my pay grade. I strongly suggest you make another appointment with a cardiologist for another echocardiogram to see what's going on. He was booking months out, and the earliest we could do was the beginning of December. We did our best to ensure Shelby's quality of life, and any ailment that she suffered, we did our best to resolve it. We were doing eye drops every day to help her vision. We were taking her to physical therapy to keep her limber and strong. We were watching out for her heart to ease her breathing and keep her safe. And we were about to restore her eyesight. Although Shelby had reached that age where she was naturally slowing down, she still had plenty of time ahead of her. She had waded the banks of rivers and streams, hiked along railway beds and explored forests and nature preserves. She traveled throughout Pennsylvania, upstate New York, and once spent a week in Vermont, where she got to hike part of the Appalachian Trail. She saw the Atlantic Ocean and ran along the water's edge on the beach. Shelby was enjoying a wonderful life, full of adventures, great and small, and love. So much love. <laughs>